Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. I'm very pleased today to introduce Aishwarya Rattan. Aishwarya is the director of the Global Financial Inclusion Initiative at Yale University. The Global Financial Inclusion Initiative focuses on the design and delivery of effective financial services for the poor. It tests and replicates different policies and approaches to help the poor manage and grow their money and to ensure that the financial services available are affordable, efficient and secure. Prior to joining the initiative in June 2011, Aishwarya was at the Microsoft Research Lab in Bangalore, India. Welcome, Aishwarya, uh, to Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs, and thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us and share your experiences and your journey. Um, Please, my pleasure. So thank you. Um, I, I wonder whether you could just tell me a little bit uh, about your background and um, what, what you do. Um, I currently work as the director of a research initiative, um, it's called the Global Financial Inclusion Initiative, and it's housed at this international nonprofit um, called Innovations for Poverty Action, um, or IPA. IPA is one of the organizations worldwide that's doing uh, work on testing the effectiveness of various development programs using this particular methodology, um, using sort of adapting medical trials for the development sector at some level. Uh, but conducting these very rigorous uh, empirical uh, experimental uh, evaluations of development programs in different sectors with academic researchers as well as with uh, practitioners and policy uh, policy makers as, as partners. Um, so that's sort of what IPA does and the initiative itself is uh, focused on finding effective solutions in the financial inclusion domain. So we test various innovative ways to think about financial products, uh, all the way from savings uh, products to things like money transfers and payment channels, um, as well as things that decision-making uh, tools uh, in trying to get to the best uh, uh, choices around financial products and behaviors uh, for uh, low-income individuals around the world. Right, right. That's very interesting. I suppose uh, when people think about, I, I guess, uh, poverty or when they think about poor people, they uh, mightn't be the first thing they think of um, the idea that you know the possibility of savings and the possibility of of you know uh, I suppose building assets and so forth. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about what you know the importance I guess of financial inclusion and and you know and and some of the ideas that you know you're seeing about savings and the potential for savings. Sure. Um, I guess the best way to sort of start thinking about it is through personal, you know, experience because finance is a domain that all of us are, you know, whether we like it or not, are very involved in uh, for our own personal lives and for our families. So finance kind of, uh, the best way to think about it is as a tool to get to the goals that, you know, each individual and each household is setting for itself, whether that has to do with investment in some sort of uh, uh, human capital, uh, which is what all of us do in terms of educational investments and healthcare investments, or whether it has to do with things that poor families often uh, find themselves in positions where they're self-employed or running small enterprises, 
So whether it's investments in those kinds of uh, of goals. Um, so finance, whether it is through savings um, uh, or uh, through access to credit at reasonable rates and when you need it, or through sort of getting the right insurance product uh, for yourself, um, all of these are essential uh, to basically getting to any of the welfare goals that we that we deem valuable. And currently, the reason we're even talking about this as something that requires, you know, special attention and effort is because globally there is a still quite a disparity in how different kinds of uh, individuals and households can enter uh, financial markets that are more formal or more organized uh, or regulated, right? So for the most part, um, poor households deal with informal uh, providers of either savings or lending uh, or, or borrowing uh, services. And oftentimes the terms of these contracts tend not to be as favorable uh, to the client as what you might get in the, the formal market. And so part of the question is, why is it that the formal financial sector that is so large and so sophisticated at this point in some parts of the world and uh, for certain kinds of clients, why is it that the same financial sector cannot serve the poor effectively in getting to their own investment goals? So that's part of the challenge. Um, so that's uh, within sort of the, the the entire set of issues that come up um, uh, when you're thinking about financial um, access for the poor, you can break them down into a whole set of barriers. And we have a nice uh, review paper uh, that tries to think about some of these barriers, specifically when it comes to savings products for the poor. And, you know, they can relate to things like cost uh, issues and how the products are priced, uh, both in terms of just the fees, as well as these hidden costs uh, in terms of what it takes to access the product, how close is the closest transaction point, all the way to barriers that are uh, involve social and behavioral issues in how people deal uh, with uh, using financial, accessing and using uh, financial products uh, effectively. So our work sort of spans that entire uh, domain and it remains sort of a, a big challenge despite sort of decades of work uh, in trying to bridge some of these gaps. I think currently the some of the, um, I think in 2012, the, uh, there's this thing called the, the Global Financial um, Inclusion Index, the Findex report, which the World Bank produces, basically trying to take stock of, of how access and usage of, uh, of, of financial services is working worldwide. And even the most recent figure sort of talks about, I think, uh, about seven, over 75, so about 77% of poor households, so those living, adults living on less than $2 a day, still do not um, have an account, uh, a savings account at a formal financial institution. So it remains sort of an amazingly um, uh, important challenge. And beyond the question of access, there are questions of usage of these accounts. So that's sort of the, the nature of the challenge. Um, and in terms of of interesting opportunities or solutions that we're, provide, that we're pursuing, um, would you like me to give like particular examples from the savings domain that might that might be helpful? Yeah, no, absolutely. That'd be very interesting. Okay, so one of the uh, one set of studies uh, that we've conducted, I think, over the past few years, have to do with reducing cost barriers, right? So this may seem what has been surprising is uh, the effect the effects that we've we've observed from uh, reducing just simple opening fees and um, 
and other sort of entry uh, fees uh, into the formal financial sector. So one of the early studies that sort of set some of this, um, some of our interest in, in testing savings products for the poor more intensively had to do with just removing sort of the opening fees of maybe uh, a few dollars uh, for a formal savings account in Kenya. And uh, this was for uh, a sample of, uh, of poor individuals, mostly women who were working as vendors uh, in, a, in a market. And uh, over a, a period of about six months um, and uh, over the, the course of the next year, the results that they found in terms of the investment, you know, something like a 38 to 56% increase in daily investment in their enterprises. And, uh, you know, beyond that, on expenditures itself uh, that these women were making in their everyday lives. So that kind of magnitude of impact is quite remarkable when it comes to something as simple as removing just the fee barrier to entering uh, the formal financial system. And if you think about it, you know, savings, the reason it, it might be so effective is because it starts uh, allowing you to create, you know, a way to store away funds for investment in the future in the face of many barriers that prevent you from doing that on a regular basis. So you can imagine a scenario where when cash is on hand, it's much easier to spend it, you know, on things that come up on a daily basis um, than when it's locked away and inaccessible to you. So that's partly what the bank account does. It takes this money away, you know, from you. So all your, all your, your, the availability of this cash to make expenditures that might be less important than the ones that you want to make in the future um, is, uh, is less, right? Um, similarly, a lot of the, the observations in low-income communities is that there is a good amount of social pressure. Um, in order to uh, share funds, and sometimes this is extremely good in terms of allowing for informal insurance networks, you know, uh, to, to share some of the risk uh, that poor families face. But sometimes it also comes at the cost of uh, people being able to accumulate for the goals they've set for themselves when there is pressure to share, you know, any surplus funds uh, that are at hand. So in some ways, having this kind of a safe savings uh, place, you know, uh, away from where uh, cash is readily held and transacted in the household can allow for that accumulation with, uh, without these kinds of uh, leakages in some way. And so that's, that's how we might start to think about how important uh, safe savings uh, are in our everyday lives, which we've sort of taken for granted now, but which seem to have a, a quite a dramatic impact uh, when it comes to households that so far have not been able to have uh, that facility. So that's one example. Another set of... Um, tests that we've been doing have to do with some of these behavioral issues, not just the, the basic fees and, you know, cost issues, but some of these behavioral issues when it comes to thinking about how we deal with finance. Because finance is basically, you know, the process of making trade-offs between the present and the future. We consume today, but we do want to also consume in the future, right, when we might not have the same kind of income stream. So how do we make those, those trade-offs, and not just for us, but also for our children, uh, you know, for our families into the future? Um, and so some of these... Um, We've been testing um, an early study in the Philippines, for example, which uh, the paper was published, I think, in 2006. So an early study um, tried to test just simple um, goal-based uh, savings accounts uh, for low-income households and um, introduced certain features which uh, had the clients pre-commit to either a target date or a target amount before which they would be able to access the funds. So it's a little bit like a fixed or a recurring deposit account, but with quite a, a hard uh, commitment, right? 
And so the take up for this account was something in the range of, you know, 28% of, of those who were offered the account took it up, which is a good thing because this is not uh, an easy account for everybody to respond to well. It's a yeah. fairly hard commitment. Right? Yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, those who took up the account saw something like an 80% increase in sort of their stock of savings um, over the course of a year. And that, again, is quite remarkable because we tend not to pay as much attention to some of these behavioral issues in terms of overcoming our own um, self-control problems in, in, tar in achieving sort of these targets. So sometimes these kind of uh, commitments that we set have such a powerful, uh, you know, whether it's enforced through financial penalties for early withdrawal or through sort of psychological costs, you know, in terms of saying, oh, my God, I didn't meet it and I didn't have a good enough reason not to meet it. Um, those kinds of features, building them into our financial products can have a significant effect on, on how we we plan for our own investments. And I think that's another really promising line of work that we're taking further. We're testing in a number of settings, a number of kind, you know, a number of variations in commitment contracts uh, that can help people sort of get to their own goals. So that's another example as well. Wow, that's very interesting. Um, it's very high impact, really, when you see the, 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 the kind of figures that you're talking about. Um, so, I mean, I guess it goes without saying that you believe this is, a, 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 a you know could have a a really significant impact on poverty alleviation and wealth creation and, uh, and and related activities. I mean globally. I think in any of these cases, you know, all these different interventions are trying to get at particular pain points and alleviate them in some way. Sometimes through uh, you know small uh, you know small. Um, relaxation of the of the constraint and in other cases in quite dramatic ways but ultimately it is sort of the com compounded effect of all of these different interventions that's going to move some of the the great targets that that we've set to make sure all families and all individuals can have um, can have really amazing fulfilling lives right so it, it'll be hard for me to say that, of course, savings accounts is sort of the solution, but that's not true. It's part of, of the solution. But what is promising is that through fairly low-cost ways of going about uh, intervening, we're able to see fairly significant sort of movement when it comes to, uh, uh, to consumption or investment decisions. And that is really promising. You know, and I think the, the reason this is also important is over the past decade, there's been a, a much greater emphasis on uh, rigorously e evaluating what is working and what is not when it comes to development uh, interventions. Um, and the methodology that we follow uh, is part of that movement towards uh, really trying to be very accountable for what interventions have the greatest scope. And so these nuggets of like promising paths that come from really rigorous evaluations um, I think hold good scope for uh, replication and scale because there has been a good amount of rigor that went into identifying that this particular intervention, because it was implemented as a randomized control trial, um, has a, a very good chance of being effective uh, in reaching sort of the outcomes that we've seen. Certainly, they need to be adapted to every context in which we test them uh, or we try to replicate and scale them. But the initial uh, evaluation itself is uh, fairly strong uh, and a good base to build on compared to sort of what we might think about a few decades ago, where um, a lot of uh, what was discussed as, you know, 
great solutions to poverty uh, were in fact not based on anything uh, quite as rigorous or robust. Right, right. I mean, clearly this is really important, the, the research and finding out what works and doesn't work. And that's, I mean, really uh, excellent uh, work. Um, what about um, the next cha stage of, of actually creating change um, and getting these... Uh, Getting people to act upon this and to to to, uh, to, to you know to, to create change. I know that you know I, I spoke to Professor Ian McMillan at Wharton, and he 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 notes that in many situations before you know uh, people come in to, to create social change that there's a, a status quo, and you know very often there are beneficiaries of that status quo. So there are people, you know, wh while there are social problems to be solved, there are also parts of the community that, you know, uh, are happy enough with the way things are for various different reasons. Um, uh, you know, and, and uh, so w w what about that? Uh, the, the, you know, the barriers to, I guess, to, 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 to change to people taking up these ideas and implementing them. I mean, wh where do you go there? I mean, to what extent are you involved in that? And what has been your experience with, with you know, seeing these, um, you know, great insights and, and, and research-driven discoveries actually implemented? So I think the, the scene is, is changing uh, quite uh, actively. Right. So I, I think you're exactly right that and it's true probably of all processes of all human activity that there is uh, typically some some path and to deviate from that path at a fairly large scale requires a lot of uh, you know overcoming of resistance. But in the uh, development sector, I think there are a couple of um, sort of uh, uh, forces that might uh, push us in a direction where uh, it is possible to imagine a, a number of these solutions uh, actually going to scale. Um, so one, for example, is over the past uh, years, there's an increasing uh, interest among those who are uh, donors and funders, whether those are you know, multilaterals or whether they are um, um, private foundations, you know, that are funding a lot of development work. Um, there's an increasing emphasis on their side to build in evaluations into the programs that they are supporting. Sometimes it even goes to the extent of saying the evaluations need to be implemented as randomized evaluations uh, since they come with uh, a fair amount of methodological rigor um, in terms of presenting, uh, you know, uh, strong and uh, reliable results. So that is actually a very powerful force because a lot of development activity is grant funded. And so when there is an interest among those who are providing these grants to make sure that there is evidence backing up the programs, there is a good amount of pressure to actually implement these. But on the flip side, I think there is also, um, I think there's, in any of these, there, there needs to be the political will to, to do um, or to sort of look in the mirror at some level, right? To look in the mirror very carefully and say, this is what we're doing that is working and this is what we're doing that can be improved. And I think that is exactly where the kind of work we do is helpful. It is not to say that we are rejecting, uh, you know, certain interventions, uh, just because of the, the way they are, it's more so a way of saying how, what is it that we are doing right now to address this particular constraint? What is it that we know from theory that tells us about how human behavior works, uh, typically from things like you know, psychology or from economics, um, 
uh, and in other domains, what are the things that we have learned so far on how we can anticipate uh, this intervention influencing the outcomes that we're after, and how can we test for alternative ways to get to the same goal, not just the way that is currently being implemented, but perhaps other routes to getting to the same goal that the partner organization is interested in achieving. So it's extremely collaborative as a premise. Um, and I think with sort of uh, compounded with the interest uh, in evidence-based policy as a, as a global goal or at some level, um, I think there is potential for, uh, for these solutions to, to find, uh, you know, larger and larger audiences. And one good example of this is um, IPA, um, uh, uh, you know, a decade ago or so, started off with doing an evaluation on um, deworming you know, of children in school, school-based deworming, a very simple low-cost intervention to get uh, rid of intestinal worms for children in Kenya. And uh, the results that were that came out of that study were, were very powerful in terms of the impact on the health of the children and in their ability to stay in school and actually, you know, pay attention and, and, and get something out of school. And those results have since been taken to scale in a number of countries that have found them to be a, a really cost-effective way to going about uh, keeping children in school, you know, through what you might think about as a health intervention, right? So these kinds of results, uh, I think, when they are done well and presented transparently, can move uh, those who make decisions, and that is sort of uh, the hope. You're right that there's a lot of resistance to overcome, but uh, I think there are also, uh, there are enough people who are doing good work who recognize that this might be uh, a good way to improve the way development is done. Yeah, no, ab uh, absolutely. Um, and and would you say that there's a, you know, where are, to generalize, I suppose, people in terms of awareness of this financial inclusion? I mean, it seems to be a, a, a subject which is getting a lot of attention now. I mean, you've been at this for some years, and I know there's been various initiatives over that time. Um, you know, how, how would you situate, where, where are people on this at the moment? I think there around sort of the story of, um, you know, Grameen in, in Bangladesh, you know, which I, I think after Professor Yunus received the Nobel Prize, there was widespread recognition of microcredit, you know, as a, as, as a you know, part of, of how, um, how uh, institutions can intervene in, in trying to get uh, poor families to, uh, you know, to, to build enterprises, build assets, and, and uh, leave, like, um, rise out of poverty in some ways. And I think that public discussion, which started um, maybe quite focused on microcredit that was delivered through a very specific model, certainly now has a lot more nuance in it. There are a lot of debates that go on on what are uh, the, you know, the measurable impacts of microcredit, uh, what are different uh, models of delivering it. Um, but I think the discussion has broadened out, you know, that sort of uh, shown a light on the importance of financial services at some level and the exclusion of large populations from financial services. But I think that uh, the building of the nuance and sort of thinking more, um, more aggressively on uh, what are the various combinations of financial products that are essential to building a healthy portfolio for every kind of family also uh, has come up 
in the context of all of the, the troubles around uh, the financial crisis, right? So now when you speak about some of these issues uh, in the context of poor families and the difficulty of meeting, uh, you're making investments for the future and the combination of savings and credit products that can get you there uh, and insurance, there is a little bit of an echo in the way a number of families in uh, the US and Europe uh, faced a, a, a horrible situation for the past five years when it came to um, having their having their own sort of healthy financial uh, portfolios and in that sense there is kind of a lot of attention I think right now on finance as a critical piece of getting to uh, to human welfare which I think maybe is is because of the ongoing sort of political and economic uh, environment yes right no uh, I, I think that's interesting. Also, I, I, I know I've spoken to uh, some people involved in this area, and I, uh, to, to Mike Quinn, who, who's in Zuna in, in uh, Kenya, and, right. um, and uh, oh, he's not in Kenya. I'm going to have to cut that out. Mike, I think Zambia. Zambia, yeah. Mike Quinn. Yeah. Oh, she said it again. <laughs> I spoke to Mike Quinn uh, of Zuna in Zambia, and I know M-Pesa in, in Kenya, has been, uh, you know, had 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 huge results as well. Which are these? I guess. Uh, well, I don't know whether you say they're disrupting the banking system, but they, you know, operating through mobile phones and just amazing amount of innovation. Really, um, what what kind of potential do you see in in these kind of ideas? No, they're incredible and they're wonderful. And I part of the issue is that there's just so much path dependence both in sort of you know uh, in some ways in in the financial sector and and technology um, that sometimes some of these uh, very innovative solutions that really try to uh, optimize uh, in new ways uh, come from places where the constraint has been so severe in terms of uh, not not having solutions to particular problems that people are facing um, that it can really seem like a, a huge, you know, leapfrogging uh, forward, uh, and I think the case of M-Pesa in Kenya, everybody cites it as a, as a, an amazing example. There are so many different factors contributing to that kind of innovation that goes to scale so quickly. You know, both on the business side as well as sort of on the demand side. You know, who are the people who are uh, making the demand for these kinds of uh, small transfers at this frequency, and. Uh, Part of also the challenge has been that those kinds of models, um, even in, in the countries surrounding Kenya, um, have uh, had a different path. Uh, and it's very difficult to say you know, exactly what is not um, working. Uh, but I think the, the fact that there can be you know, models that uh, try to uh, look at things quite differently than sort of the traditional, let's look at the West and adapt some of those solutions for uh, for other countries, I think is extremely uh, promising. And part of what we're trying to do is test how these channels, you know, basically create, uh, like how are they first of all adopted and how are they then used for optimal impact, but also how do they build an ecosystem which is quite different from uh, the ecosystems that we are familiar with. So an ecosystem that is digital, but based on, uh, you know, this network of very simple phones, um, has uh, is similar but also quite different from what you would expect you know the path to have been uh, in other countries uh, where you know it's a different set of technologies and a different set of needs uh, driving uh, change 
I think the one thing I will say is that it it would be great for some of those innovations to to move, you know, in the direction from Kenya uh, and from you know places uh, uh, in Africa and Asia and Latin America to other regions, because even now when you think about some of these uh, uh, some of the ways in which large companies operate uh, in the U.S., like a simple example would be prepaid uh, phone services, right? Mm. Just the disparity and how, in the ease of those contracts in uh, in countries like Kenya, and the ease of transferring money using your phone there versus in a place like the U.S. Uh, is quite remarkable. So I think everybody gains from this kind of uh, of disruptive innovation. Well, yeah, it's a very interesting question, really, isn't it? The uh, that that stage of uh, actually transferring knowledge and expertise, you know, what what's working. Um, to other environments where, as you say, they may, may have different initial conditions or different, um, you know, different environments, but yet they can they could be ad- ad- adapted to work in that environment. And I guess we're seeing s- quite a few different models emerge, so it's quite promising, I suppose, um, in, in that respect. And I, I suppose it also brings up this question and, I, you know, the whole idea of, I suppose, social entrepreneurship and uh, it, it, it's a pretty broad church and, you know, there's some organizations aren't profit making, others are um, and the different kinds of ways of structuring and so forth. But I suppose the the the, the idea of, of, of people making a profit in, in a sense or the idea of it being sustainable, at least the idea that, you know, that that. Uh, the services that are being provided somehow pay their way and therefore the organizations are uh, become sustainable and aren't dependent upon you know handouts and so forth seems to me you know a pretty important development i'm i think my view generally has been and i i've i know a few people who who think this way and i tend to agree with them that um i think the key ingredient is to demonstrate value and that is why I'm in the in this line of uh, you know measurement and evidence and uh, uh, and creating sort of a clear case for where there is value when it comes to affecting uh, the welfare of poor households. Once that value is demonstrated, I think there are a number of ways to have it supported. You know, one path uh, is to basically offer uh, a service uh, that has a fee that the clients themselves can can pay. Another path is uh, through uh, government who have a mandate to serve uh, the poor in each country and who offer services to help them, uh, uh, you know, again, build assets, you know, uh, and uh, find uh, lives that are, are better and, and fulfilling. So that's and that is no less important a path than any other. Um, and several amazing things in the world have been built through uh, direct government uh, subsidy and support. Uh, including education, which is heavily subsidized in most countries and which we are fine with because we see a clear case for, for that being important and valuable and uh, generating returns uh, for individuals and for society at large. Um, similarly, there are other pathways for, for getting support through, for example, foundations right, that who, who believe in particular goals and want to get there but are looking for really effective solutions. So I think the case to make is that there needs to be demonstrated value and how you operationalize that to scale uh, is dependent on, at some level, your choice and sort of uh, plans, but also on how it fits with some of these other models for scale, uh, which are also viable. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I suppose it's it's just seeing a, a, a range of different kinds of organizations and, you know, clearly, you know, different market conditions and different needs, you know, will, will bring forth different ways of, you know, different structures and so forth. But um, just talking to people, I, I guess, I get that sense that there's a, there's a, 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 a an ecology or a range of different approaches um and one thing i mean i spoke to eve moray is that um i spoke to eve moray uh from is it fondation uh cap capital capital yeah, yeah capital yeah and you know they do a lot of work with uh, you know i think connecting with the governments and connecting with um you know i guess really trying to to create change and working with the largest possible group to do that um, as well, which was, I, was quite interesting. Certainly. And I think the financial sector is exactly in that space between uh, certain pieces of our financial services are, uh, you know, directly in, in the ambit of uh, the private sector, whether formal or informal, in terms of the products we use, and uh, but uh, products we use, the services and the processes for accessing those products, the fees we're charged, um, etc., but it's also a sector that uh, is uh, necessarily regulated by uh, the government and the central banks of each country, right? And they set the terms for that interaction. So simple things like disclosure of uh, terms uh, around the accounts that you're using, they can go all the way uh, from uh, being uh, absolutely, um, you know, uh, difficult to process and lead to outcomes that are severely harmful for clients when they have signed on to products uh, for which they really do not know the full range of implications, to sort of government, uh, government regulation that requires uh, various things that make it extremely easy for clients to understand which product to choose that suits their own uh, needs, constraints, requirements, etc. And that is not an intervention that is costly or that needs to be paid for by the client, but it is a, a mandate by the state to say that this is a better way of doing things in terms of risk and in terms of uh, protection uh, for citizens. And those are the kinds of uh, choices, I think, that we should also prioritize and not just look at, you know, uh, product design from the perspective of, you know, financial service providers. All of them are important pieces of the puzzle, and we need to sort of target, target them, uh, you know, at the same time if we want to make some progress uh, in this domain. Right, right. And what about for you and, and uh, where, where the, you, you go next in terms of your research? I mean, what, what would you say your goals are over the next few years um, in terms of research or in terms of, uh, I guess, acting upon the research or implementation? I think so. Right now we have maybe about 25 or 26 ongoing large-scale randomized trials in the financial inclusion domain. Uh, globally. And so we certainly are very excited to see how we progress and uh, learn from the results that we generate um, over the, the next uh, couple of years. Um, a second sort of goal would be uh, to really have a discussion on the results. Like one of the things that we deal with is we produce these wonderful uh, results. The researchers we work with um, uh, spend a lot of time and effort in painstakingly designing uh, the right kind of studies, and IPA uh, puts a lot of effort into rigorously implementing this study. Um, and ultimately, what we get out of these uh, these uh, evaluations are results. Uh, but these results tend to go into academic papers and maybe some policy reports that a lot of people actually do not pay attention to. Um, so part of our role is also to get 
these results into the hands of uh, those who can process them and incorporate them into the into the decisions they're making, whether they are financial service providers as well as you know policymakers, um, but also to the general public at large, you know, for whom these are important questions to uh, to deal with, and the evidence itself. Building that nuance on understanding what really constitutes reliable evidence is is also part of our mandate. So I think that's another um, big goal to sort of be uh, an instrument for that kind of uh, of uh, you know uh, change in terms of how we we treat evidence and how we incorporate evidence into the decisions that we're making um, in policy and practice. Um, and I think another piece of it is also to think about ways, like you were saying, you know, ways to scale. So some of the results that we've uh, gotten are at the stage where they're, um, they, uh, we're looking to replicate them in a, a number of different settings. Um, so this includes some of our uh, previous studies on messaging programs, where we found like simple, you know, text messages um, can be quite powerful in drawing people's attention to certain goals or certain actions that they've set for themselves and in improving future-oriented behaviors like saving. So that's a program that we're replicating uh, globally now, and we're looking for partners. And similarly for some of the, the studies that um, on commitment uh, devices and products when it comes to uh, uh, financial services, that's also something that we're replicating and trying to scale. In this, I think part of the challenge is, is engaging with sort of large financial sector uh, actors uh, and building some of these... Uh, insights and processes into the way they do product design internally. Uh, that can be a huge win, but it's also quite difficult, as you can imagine, because uh, large banks, for example, telecom companies have their own uh, ways of doing product design, which may not uh, incorporate some of these, uh, these uh, you know, better ways of, of thinking about how they might be used by uh, by low-income clients. So that's part of the challenge and the goal as well, to see uh, how we can take our work and integrate it into sort of the work of organizations that provide financial services uh, in different countries. Right, that's very interesting. I, 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 I interviewed Gustav Preikelt from the Preikelt Foundation, and they are very active, in, he's South African, uh, very active in, in Africa. I think there's about 50 million uh, people uh, connected to various programs, primarily in the health arena, but in terms of, uh, you know, uh, one area is around uh, pregnancy and, and pregnant mothers and providing them with information by simple, you know, messaging uh, over the various stages of the pregnancy and giving them information on what they need. And also there's another one on in, in, in HIV uh, area, uh, medical program in terms of providing information in terms of taking, you know, uh, drugs at particular times and so forth, which have been highly effective. So, I mean, that's somebody, in, in fact, who who is, uh, I, I will, uh, I, I, I just send an email to in any case, because they're very involved in, in, in really using mobile communications um, in Africa, particularly to, to you know, to, to, to help uh, communicate and, and the kinds, take the kind of actions which you're talking about using simple messaging systems to help uh, motivate or help focus uh, people's attention to take the right kind of action. Absolutely. And you can so easily also relate that to, say, related financial decisions, right? Absolutely. So one of the one of the ways in which you can think about 
uh, when savings can be very useful is about these things which are predictable predictable investments and when you know you start a pregnancy you know you have a certain period you know a certain amount of expenses that will need to be made at the time of the delivery of the child um and all of those can be predicted for and uh, part of what we can do is prepare people for that uh, that anticipated expense and this could be integrated into things that are related to health messages but also sort of messages on what you might need and uh, how you can save up for it um uh for for such a an investment that you need to make absolutely excellent and i guess uh in a paradoxical way i come to a question which probably should have asked you at the beginning but what inspires you to do the work that you do and to keep going when things are difficult when you're working on tough research projects or uh generally uh getting funding for projects that you believe in uh, and keeping going when when things are difficult uh i think probably just sort of this core interest in um, in sort of rigor at some level um so i think the domain that you know we work in is uh, i used to work a little bit more in uh, technologies for development a little broader than just finance and over the past couple of years i'm i'm quite focused on innovations within the financial sector but i think across both those points in time i think what is uh, the two things that are probably critical are that the world as it is is uh, not optimal for the majority of people who live in it and i think that's what motivates most people who enter the development sector that there is a need for us to change the way we are doing things uh, economically politically to make sure it's more inclusive for every person um but also on top of that to say that you know we need to set high standards for ourselves um in terms of how we go about doing this and it's not just enough to do something it's important to do the right thing and for that i think all the hours we spend you know painstakingly going through the details of different designs and how we might operationalize this and you know what might be an impediment and how we might build a convincing case uh, for a cost effective uh, solution that can scale all of the the details of that you know uh, are important and i think uh, the reason i think those are important and i spend time on all of them is because i think you know this rigor will make us do things uh, far more effectively and maybe that's what drives drives uh, our work even through times when it's quite uh, challenging well, that's that's very interesting and very very inspiring <laughs> to um one one final question if i might and i i just it ties in with i suppose you your funding and um like uh, many organizations uh it's it's is always a challenge to to get funds um and i i i know you have had uh, some good support and some good supporters um wh- what have you learned um that would be helpful maybe to to others uh, raising uh, money from foundations and so forth to do good work uh, about about raising money uh in this area um i'd say basically it'll go back to sort of you know my previous comment on demonstrating value um uh, and i think part part of that is really in building the case for why someone must uh, might consider investing in what you're doing uh, the more rigorous sort of the not just the the figures but the the case you can make for it in in a lot of what we do we say it's you know the the theory of change that you are uh, after so the more convincing sort of the the evidence and the 
theory of change, uh, sort of how that will operationalize um, that material is when you go in uh, to having these discussions with partners, um, I think uh, the easier it becomes. Uh, and I, I think I, I certainly find that oftentimes people have uh, an idea um, and uh, the details aren't thought through and there are a lot of assumptions built into why they think it's going to work. And they have small pilots um, on the basis of which they make uh, much uh, much larger claims that may not be fully supported. So it, it might be good to, I think, really build, you know, a detail uh, and testing into the, the pitch that you're making to a funder or a donor. But simultaneously, I think, to be realistic on what it takes to do it well and to iterate. I think there is no substitute for... Um, for trying different approaches and getting to the one that is most effective um, in the course of, of trying to get support for your project. Uh, because we are often attached to the approach we've taken, but it may not always be the most effective way to get to the goal. So I think having that built into the process that you're uh, uh, adopting, I think can be quite useful in convincing people that you have a, a healthy approach to, to getting something done. Right, right, that's very interesting. Uh, thank you for that. And thank you very much for taking the time today to, to share with us your, your journey and your insights. And I wish you the very best of success. Uh, so thank you very much. No problem. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.